I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Shout out to all of the day one listeners and all of the returning listeners. Thank you so much for your continued support of this show. You are the reason why this show is still a show for as busy as I am and how crazy things are. Y'all really show up every week, so I really appreciate your continued, continued support. For all of the uh, new listeners, first-time listeners, Triloquy is a show that takes this idea of uh, classical music, so-called classical music, and interrogates it as only a corner of what we should be talking about when we use that phrase classical music. And we actually get into that in today's interview with uh, Joe LaRocca. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But uh, if you would like to learn more about the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, to learn a little bit about the folks who've made this work possible and to contribute to the cause, visit the website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.com. O-R-G. Um, as I just mentioned, Joe LaRocca is coming uh, to the podcast here in a few minutes, but I wanted to share that uh, I'm here in Detroit. Greetings from, uh, what do they call this? The I forget the nickname for this state or for this city, but uh, greetings from the D. I'll say it that way here at the Sphinx Conference. Uh, so shout out to all of the folks so far who have uh, voiced their appreciation for the show or, you know, grabbed me and uh, and said hello. It's really great to be in the real world in real life and uh, get to engage y'all. So uh, I'm mentioning that I'm here at Sphinx because I'm freestyling tonight. I usually put a lot of work into really developing some sort of script where I can make sure I'm not going too much on a tangent or speaking for too long. But because things are so crazy, I flew out early from New York early this morning. We're going to freestyle it today. So um, hope y'all appreciate that. Uh, before we get into the conversation with Joe LaRocca, I wanted to say a couple words about a musical experience that I had a few days ago that I wasn't expecting. So I was on a call um, with uh, ACO. We're working on some collaborations that are uh, highlighting hip hop and other popular musics through the orchestral medium. And uh, the partner, the person who we were talking to, mentioned that Andre 3000 was having a listening party in New York that day. So while I was on the Zoom call, I went and uh, bought one of the last couple tickets that were available for me and Dell. We were right there in the front row. And uh, it was a really cool experience. We were in an IMAX theater and we listened through the entire um, album, New Blue Sun by Andre 3000. If you haven't checked that out, I, I definitely recommend. And over the course of the uh, album, Andre 3000 is on screen listening as well. Sometimes he's dancing. Sometimes he's laying there. Sometimes it looks like he's asleep. Sometimes he's doing some exercises. It was a really avant-garde, cool sort of experience. And then at the end of the whole thing, Andre 3000 actually came out for a live uh, talk back in Q&A. So it was really cool to see that as cool. I'm going to use that word. That's how he described this new blue sun in this new world that he imagined. So as cool as this experience was, one of the things that I kept thinking about was the fact that creative music, you know, so-called classical music that's outside of that European uh, sort of a uh, parameter sort of context it exists and it has always existed. And there are so many people doing it. I'm thinking about uh, the uh, AACM in Chicago, black musicians really diving into uh, creative music. But I'm also thinking about all of the folks who uh, I engaged through my work at the American Composers Orchestra, really creating new sounds and new aesthetics using uh, these instruments that we've always known is not a new thing. But 
you know, unfortunately, and, and this is no slight or anything to Andre 3000, of course, but there are so many folks who are just now engaging creative music, you know, classical music outside of the parameters of, you know, traditional orchestras and that sort of thing. They're engaging that for the very, very first time, thanks to Andre 3000, which is great. But what has led me to sort of realize is that fame and notoriety is a, a huge part must have to be a huge part of the development of this music over the next few generations to come. Andre 3000 is someone who's known as a rapper. I believe that, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that if he started out in jazz or started out in improvisatory music, the, the sort of music that you'll hear in uh, New Blue Sun, I don't know if he would be as famous as he is today, A, and B, I don't know if he would have gotten the type of listenership that he has gotten um, off of that creative music album. Now, again, I'll repeat myself, this is not a slight to Andre 3000 or creative music or or anything like that, but the fact that he is notable, the, the fact that he's uh, noteworthy <laughs> is a huge uh, ingredient in the fact that folks are listening to this type of music. So on one hand, I hope that uh, creative musicians who aren't as famous as Andre 3000 can sort of understand this idea and understand that getting in front of the people, you know, exposure can't pay the bills, but exposure certainly has some use. I hope that, you know, you'll think about that. And on the other hand, I hope that there are more uh, pop musicians, rap music, hip hop, you know, all of those folks outside of the so-called classical genre who will explore improvisatory music and creative music because you're really opening a door to so many people uh, that they never even knew was there. I'm thinking about this, you know, not only because I just had this experience of listening to Andre 3000 Live and uh, having the experience of hearing that album with full IMAX speakers. I mean, it was it was really great. I hope to listen to more uh, creative music like that. But I'm bringing it up because uh, what Joe LaRocca talks about in our conversation that we're about to hear is something similar, not so much about fame, but this idea that there are so many musics out there that can be harnessed and there are folks who have always been doing that sort of thing. So in the uh, interview, for example, you'll hear Joe mention a Yo-Yo uh, a Ma Brazilian music album. I haven't heard this album. Maybe I need to listen to it. But the point that he's making is that there are so many folks on the classical side of things who will take an idea of a cultural music, get someone to write it down and perform it, play it, platform it, record it, but still through this sort of classical medium. He was tapping more into that point, but what I really picked out from that was the fact that Yo-Yo Ma is a name that lots of folks know. You don't have to be a cellist or a, a Western classical musician to know who he is, but you know we have so many people out there, and I'm not going to accuse him of cultural appropriation or anything like that, but we have so many people out here who are really stewarding this music and fostering this music who will never get the shine of Yo-Yo Ma, who will never get the shine of Andre 3000. So as we're engaging these musics and these conversations and everything in between, I hope that we'll think about where we lie on this spectrum of fame versus paying homage to the people who stewarded certain musics and 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 all of those sorts of things. I'm not saying that a person has to be from uh, China to play a ditsa, for example, you know, but uh, which we're going to hear in a, in a few minutes to intro my conversation with Joe. I'm not saying that you have to necessarily be from a culture to platform and enjoy and engage that music. All I'm saying is that there has 
to be at least a recognition that there are so many folks who have been doing this music and do this music who don't have the same platforms as folks who dip their toe into the music. There, there are so many examples that I can pull from, but I think Joe does a really great job of, of making that point. And I hope that's something that you'll think about if you check off the Andre 3000 album, if you listen to music by the Silk Road Ensemble, they come up um, in, uh, in, in my conversation with Joe. Just think about the fact that this music comes from somewhere. It's been stewarded. And the folks who have brought it to the front to a broader audience, maybe a more, a more popular audience, um, they're, they're, they're only that. They're the deliverer of this music, but not the creator of this music. So anyway, that, that, that's enough of my rambling <laughs> for, for now. I need to get downstairs and uh, fellowship with the people here at the Sphinx Conference. But uh, a little bit about Joe LaRocca. Joe um, is a, uh, a classically trained musician who has become someone who really engages the world of musical theater and other sorts of creative music. So we talk about what that sort of career path looks like, what the orchestra industry sort of has wrong when it when it comes to the way that they're engaging musicians. You know, one of the points that's made is that, you know, orchestral musicians are very specialized, but that doesn't make them the best, or that certainly doesn't make them the most dynamic or the most flexible. So, you know, all sorts of really incredible things that we uh, talk about in, um, in our conversation. To get us into the conversation, I'm going to share a little bit of Joe LaRocca's uh, sort of promo reel. So, if you go to his website, and I'll have his website uh, uh, linked in the description of this opus, you'll get to see a video where he's demonstrating his ability to play not only so many different instruments, but in so many different styles. I think it's something that you don't see every day, certainly not from the field of so-called classical music, and something that I'm really proud to uh, platform and celebrate here on the Triloquy Podcast. So hope you enjoy this excerpt from Joe LaRocca's promo reel showing off his uh, inter-style skills, inter <laughs> disciplinary skills, and also hope that you uh, enjoy the conversation we have. I'll say more on the other side of it. Yeah, so it, the the reel itself is kind of a, you know, uh, obviously a demonstration of skill, but it has a real kind of uh, practical element in terms of getting myself work you know which is like mm -hmm. mostly in musical theater at this point you know being a woodwind doubler it's synonymous with musical theater um so in putting that together it was all about finding as in in a pithy way as possible demonstrating the full breadth of my work mm -hmm. and what i'm capable of doing right um, because it, it is one thing on paper to say i play saxophone i play flute i play clarinet but do you have as I want to be able to demonstrate to people like, do I have a grasp of particular styles? Right. Mm -hmm. So, and this is actually a reason I need to update my reel and because, because like it shows that I play some classical clarinet, but it does not show that I can play middle Eastern style or klezmer style clarinet, which I can do. And I've studied um, a little bit, at least enough to know, at least enough to know what I don't know. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I can play classical flute, but it also shows that I can play sort of more contemporary jazz adjacent kind of contemporary styles. Um, and that I can actually improvise and play stylistically on a saxophone, because as we both know, there's a million ways to play saxophone these days, right? right? Uh, that are often very different from each other. And so when a contractor or I actually like your use of the word, you know, partner, because when, you know, when you're collaborating with people, it is really a partnership. It's relationship building more than networking. And so people really want to know that you're not only capable on the instrument, but that they'll, you know, 
like you and respect you and stuff right. like that. So that's really a more appropriate term. Um, but when somebody is looking at that, that I, you know, that I just want them to know that I'm, I'm, uh, that I'm capable of playing stylistic. Because here's the thing is that we are sort of uh, in, in conservatories, particularly where like a lot of musicians are coming from, or like schools that teach in the kind of conservatory style Mm-hmm. Is that there's two, you know, it, it's like uh, it's like in the, the Blues Brothers movie where they were like, what do you play here at Bob's Country Bunker? They say, oh, we play both kinds of music, country and Western. Well, if you go to a conservatory, it's like, well, what do you teach here? Oh, we teach both kinds of music, classical and jazz. You right. know, so a lot of <laughs> right. times people are coming from one or the other of those. So if somebody is a really strong flute player and they can play saxophone and clarinet, oftentimes they have no sense of of stylistic playing or letting go of their classical sensibilities in mm-hmm. order to suit something that is more jazz or contemporary oriented. Whereas a jazz player often, you know, uh, is an extraordinarily good improviser, plays with all kinds of style, but can often play fast and loose with the rules. Now, these are just generalizations, of course, but yes. this is, but my point being that in with this reel, it's like putting together something that's definitive and saying, like, I am capable of doing these things. Yeah, about a year or so ago, I got a request to uh, record what is the tune called take five on bassoon. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, I know how that goes. No, no problem. But when I actually, sat down and kind of like looked at the notes and tried to, you know, make it work. It was very different just playing the notes versus making it sound the way that I'm used to it sounding. I'm, I'm really glad that you um, mentioned style because you could have very easily just done, I don't know, some sort of bolero style demonstration on different instruments, but showcasing your ability to engage different styles, I think was uh, very clever and, and very useful. Do, do you get to engage these uh, or have you gotten a lot of opportunities to engage these non- western um musics in performance yeah i mean it it's funny because it started mostly well actually it started in high school with being able to play sort of different styles of music um when i got asked to play in bagpipe band in eighth grade because they just needed bodies and they said oh you play saxophone bagpipes aren't that different very Mm -hmm. western style but still (laughs) like something different something different um and and so, you know, kind of that kind of branched off into like an interest in Celtic music and stuff like that. And then going into college, kind of, it, it, well, especially in grad school, I went to Northern Illinois University and um, Ray Ching Wong is the, the professor in charge of the world music department there, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. Like they have a, a Indonesian gamelan ensemble and they have a Chinese traditional Chinese ensemble and they have a Middle Eastern ensemble. And I wanted to do. I, I couldn't, I didn't really have time to do the gamelan because uh, I, you know, they didn't really have any wind instruments on it. And so I, I really wanted to like prioritize things that I could like play the instruments in. So I did Middle Eastern Chinese ensemble and that really got me started in that. It was, it, it was incredible experience, but then professionally what that ended up um, kind of culminating in was being able to do um, to be really convincing in certain theater productions, especially musical theater. Um, actually, right now I'm on a band or I'm on a, a show called The Band's Visit, um, written by David Yazbek, which is like so appropriate for right now. It's just a feel good musical about Arabs and Jews coming together and you know and and sort of connecting through music. You know these like unfamiliar people. Um, at the time, I think it was like set in the seventies or eighties or something like that. And, uh, it, it's, it's, it has all of these elements of like klezmer music and Arabic music and jazz and pop, 
um and it really culminates in something really beautiful and um let's see i also played recently in a uh, it's actually a play called the lehman trilogy um which we did uh uh carrie Perloff came to boston at the huntington theater to stage a like a new staging of it um aside from the new york production which was a different company Mm -hmm. Um, she did her own staging of it where she hired Mark Bennett, who is a sound designer and composer, um, to write, to have basically have an onstage woodwind player involved in it. And, um, kind of as like a half cast member, half musician, you know, so I was playing with a lot of backing tracks, playing solo stuff and my sort of, you know, expertise in being able to sort of play in, in a, in a klezmer style and clarinet, for example, really was utilized effectively, um in that um environment and and jazz and all that stuff and uh other than that you know it it, it is funny because nowadays you know i think 20 30 40 years ago it was the case that you know if somebody needed uh you know i think there are plenty of people for instance if you want an afro-cuban jazz ensemble there's plenty of people from cuba who can play that music here and right. i think that's kind of more of the thing that people are after nowadays um and so i don't really get like pure world music gigs but i i love seeking out these players and sort of picking their brains and and sort of playing with them as much as i can um whenever i'm not on a show so um luckily there are other shows that utilize these kind of styles as well i think lion king is like the most famous example it has uh you mm -hmm. know bonsuri and and uh pan flutes and stuff like that on it um oh another one in which like some of these more ethnic instruments were utilized but perhaps more in a musical theater style was a show called the secret garden which had like a lot of uh um, tin whistles and stuff on it and uh um, pan fluid on it as well so yeah that's a kind of a cross-section of the where those are utilized yeah and i'm glad that you mentioned that uh afro-cuban jazz ensemble because for me it it does raise questions about how this music is engaged you know respect on the music even terminology we can talk a lot about what does mm -hmm. classical music mean in that broadened you know world perspective but i've always been of the opinion that phrases like world music or ethnic music are very similar to the ethnic food aisle in the grocery store which unfortunately still exists in, in many grocery stores i right. wonder what the uh the conversations have looked like for you as you're engaging not only these different types of musics, but the cultures that are associated with them. Well, it is it is funny because even as someone who's working in musical theater, you can tell there's an artistic hierarchy with everything. You know, it's like automatically being a theater musician. It's like, oh, well, he's not a symphony musician. So, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, and so I think a lot of people come with this preconceived notion. Ah, he's not like a jazz player only playing jazz and, and playing in big bands and stuff like that. So it's like, Oh, they haven't achieved, you know, achieved the, the, the pure mastery or whatever. And I, I think there is definitely, especially when it comes to music. I mean, the fact that there is a separation between, um, you know, musicology and ethnomusicology, you right. know, it's just like, here's our, you know, European tiny, tiny part of the world. And then, 
the other half is the rest of the world. Yeah, it, it really drives me crazy when people, it, you know, and it's unfortunate because it's it's something that's kind of unavoidable sometimes in saying like world music, you know, it's just right. everything but white European sort of music. And it's, yeah, the, the, the phraseology definitely has to change about that. But luckily, you know, especially in within the music world and people who've, you know, come through the system a little bit as musicians and you know, there there is more sort of respect toward uh, other styles of music and being able to individually pinpoint those and and have some understanding and some education about them, um, albeit kind of not enough at this point. So, like for instance, plenty of people know about you know Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain and and North Indian classical music, but out of the billion people that are in India, those are like always the two names that come up, and it's like there's more than two. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you think about uh, Silk Road Ensemble, which right. I think is a double edged sword a little bit. You know, I mean, I think is a wonderful uh, idea in general. But, you know, I think, for instance, I was having this conversation the other day about Yo-Yo Ma's album of Brazilian music, which I think from his point of view comes from a good place in his heart, you know, and. But I think for someone who is such a such a master of of the classical idiom has really trouble letting go of his own style in res in order to respect the style of Brazilian music. You know, mm -hmm. when I listen to it, it is a classical player playing the notes of Brazilian music. Like someone writes out his solos for him mm -hmm. and he cannot let go of that rigical, rig uh, sorry, rigid classical style, right? Um, it's the same as like Renee Fleming's uh, like jazz stuff it's like to me it's an opera singer singing jazz or or paula robeson's uh, uh album of um of brazilian music it is a classical flutist playing the notes of brazilian music it is not brazilian music it's mm -hmm. not paying respect to the style and i think there needs to be more of a conversation in saying like if we are going as classical musicians, someone's trained in classical, if we're going to branch out into being multi-genre artists, we really need to think in that way of being a multi-genre artist and studying as much as we can with these people, with, with the people who have mastered these styles and just trying our best to, uh, you know, and bring our own flavor into it without completely ignoring the stylistic sort of norms of that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so you're bringing to mind uh, a scene from Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where uh, I believe her name is Jin. She has the green destiny sword. And uh, one of the other uh, leading women in the movies, you know, she's trying to tame Jin by grabbing all of these different swords and weapons in a battle scene. And, you know, of course, each of those weapons is destroyed by the Green Destiny. But I'm, I'm thinking about that because, you know, as a multi-instrumentalist myself, you know, bassoon is my primary. But as far as musicality and knowing what to do, I can put that spirit behind nearly any instrument I hold, even if the physical technique is not there. So it's the technique that, that really needs to be uh, cultivated. But, you know, the the vehicle to music can be any of these instruments, just as the, I don't know, the vehicle to violence can be many different weapons as long as you know how to hold them. So I wonder if 
you can um, speak to that aspect of being a multi-instrumentalist. You know how to sing on an instrument. You know how to really, you know, create the music. But how do you deal with the nuts and bolts of just really getting the muscle memories and the 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 sort of chops that you need to also be technically proficient on each of these instruments? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have the capability of of mastering the fundamentals on one instrument, you have the 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 ability to do it on any instrument. It just takes time. Um, remember somebody saying there's there's no substitute for time on the instrument, <laughs> you know, sure. um, because sometimes your subconscious kicks in, you know, and you, you start to kind of do these things on your own, you know, that sort of these things can kind of happen without you sort of actively thinking about it especially if you're kind of throwing yourself into a performance of it, you know, which I, I had done in the past um, for, you know, practical reasons. But really what it comes down to is when you're doing anything uh, when, or when you're playing any instrument or, or approaching music in any sort of way at all, there's, there's three elements to me that have to be there mm-hmm. it, no matter what you're trying to do with it. And that's intonation. That's rhythmic accuracy and it's expression. <laughs> Now there's a lot in those three things, but, and that, and that's taking sort of like the stylistic approach and sort of micro tonalities and all these things. Cause I know right. there's someone listening to this right now who just like pushed up their glasses and said, well, actually, you know, but <laughs> at the end of the day, like if you want to all good technique always makes those things uh, sort of happen. Right. So for instance, if you can't play in tune, you need to figure out, what your breath is doing or what your fingers are doing or whatever, you know, that is not making that happen or what you can do to train your ear or what you have to do to, uh, to train yourself so that when a certain line does come up, your throat, your mouth, your lips, your fingers form Mm -hmm. in the way that needs to make it happen um, subconsciously. Right. And so that just, that just takes training on the outside. And so, uh, you know, I feel, I, you know, I think about like, you know, some of the best basketball players out there like Kobe or Larry Bird or whoever, who spent tons of time working on fundamentals, like things that high school players are working on, you know, and just keeping those up and keeping in the gym and, and all that stuff. Cause there are plenty of people. I mean, there are the Shaquille O'Neal's of music who don't ever need to exercise, you know, really work out outside of the game or outside of practice and just do excellently because they're just monsters at it right but there are people like me who need to actually take more of an analytical approach to it and start working on those stuff now um like for instance specifically one of my weaker aspects traditionally has been clarinet and um because i think clarinet's even hard for clarinet players (laughs) it's a very (laughs) difficult instrument right it's got you know it's just the you know um without getting too tangential like the saxophone is pretty much built to be the perfect clarinet right but it became so fundamentally different that it became its own instrument so saxophone and flute are just so wonderful it overblows an octave the harmonics on it are pure like the it's so much easier to play into and the fingering system is amazing you can play just as fluently in c sharp as you can in c and whereas you get on clarinet it overblows a 12th you get these nightmare throat keys that like you have to you know in just the 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 gymnastics you have to go through just to do something very basic is really difficult i know you can understand that as a bassoon player i know the oh yeah fingering system <laughs> on that is just a nightmare and a half um but the you know the good thing about that is it, well okay so just going back to in terms of like what to kind of the 
how to work on it. Um, it's really just getting down to those fundamentals going da 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 and just doing that and doing that and doing that and then and just getting back to you know and it's it's hard for your ego to actually get back to the basics when you've already done so much advanced stuff on other instruments right um because it's like my fingers and my mind want to do this but how do i do it so it's just a matter of like letting that go going back just pretending like you're a kid again and there is room for that on your primary instrument too there always is so i want to tap into something that may be a little inside baseball for folks who aren't you know trained in uh in western classical music but i want to do it anyway so Mm -hmm. i've often engaged the sort of tiered uh, conversation that you presented of, you know, musicality versus rhythm versus intonation. How do you, uh, you know, balance those things? My reaction, my, my, my gut reaction is always to uh, foreground rhythm instead of mm -hmm. putting intonation at the top, because my sense is that, again, from this global perspective, intonation, this idea of being in tune is a Western phenomenon that that's not something that exists across culture uh, across all music so i wonder what your reaction is to that idea yeah i think when i say that i mean sort of purely from a uh professional standpoint in what i'm doing you I know see. um and it's it's a very western thing you know what i'm doing it's like it, it incorporates elements of of uh you know different kinds of music around the world, but it, it, you know, it's a Western thing. We play in 440, we play an equal temperament. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's one of the sort of fundamental things that I need to, you know, or that I would say if anyone wants to do what I'm doing <laughs> to have to do, you know, but I totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, I think rhythm is certainly way more fundamental. Um, rhythm and expression are definitely way more fundamental in terms of like the global uh, uh, scope of music. Um, but even then, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, different sort of intonation tendencies that end up being developed um, across different cultures. Hmm. And so there are those norms that I think end up coming about. But also, even if there are performances that are to our ears out of tune, um, that are sort of that have been developed as sort of, you know, a, a masterful practice in a in a in a in a different culture it's just about immersing yourself enough in that world to then because then if you listen to enough of it it's just like oh it makes sense these things will start to kind of come up in your mind as a subconscious thing like sort of how you know you have different micro tonalities in middle eastern music and stuff like that and different temperaments and and sort of uh you know gamelan and stuff like that you just and then you start to listen to western music again and you're like oh wait i gotta get back into that right. space and so really and and so to me that comes to the thing of like just being able to stretch yourself enough to um to sort of be able to live in different tonal worlds instead of just uh you know shaking your head at whatever doesn't completely sound right to you Right, right. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about orchestras, but uh, to transition us into that conversation, you know, 
there is uh, this culture that many people don't say out loud, but that exists, this idea that to play in a so-called top-level orchestra, you need to be playing your primary instrument. There isn't room for people who are multi-instrumentalists to really engage that space, largely because there's this idea that you know, I'll speak for myself. Sure, I'm a great bassoonist. I've had a lot of success, but maybe I'm not as great of a flute player, even though I've been playing both of those instruments for the exact period, you know, the the, the exact same amount of time. So I, I wonder if, if you can, you know, sort of speak to this phenomenon, the idea that when you get into the professional ranks, there are seemingly multi-instrumentalist gigs, your Broadway, your those sorts of things. But if you want to play in an orchestra, that's not really the space for you as a multi-instrumentalist. Yeah. I mean, if we think about what it takes to get into a top tier orchestra in the United States, it is there is a system in place, you know, and there's there are things that almost almost unanimously every single orchestra looks at before you even are invited to perform so for example a lot of orchestras nowadays are saying ah we're inviting every or you know we're, we're going to make it completely blind we're going to make every element of the of the process completely blind um what they're going to do a cv round first <laughs> right know? right i'm sorry a cv round is not blind thank you very much um, and so, you know, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll look at resumes. If you went to Juilliard, if you went to Curtis, if you went to Colburn, if you went to Interlochen, bam, you're invited. If you slogged it out in a in a regional symphony for 10 years, okay, you'll be invited to participate in the blind first round. This is the way these things work, right? But if you have things that aren't just purely in the system that, you know, the sort of classical you know, symphony, you know, the symphony administrative infrastructures are familiar with, then they'll say, oh, okay, well, why don't you send us a recording first so you can prove that you're <laughs> good enough to come play, which, right. you know, boggles my mind. Cause it's like, I I'm sitting here, you know, I think about how my career started. It's like, I needed to start doing musical theater because I needed to pay the rent, you know, <laughs> like I needed, like there were the only gigs that were actually paying any money in town were musical theater gigs i'm like okay well i have flute and saxophone down already i guess i better start working on clarinet so i could start making some money and now i'm making 100 of my income from performing music at this point and so it's like oh well how dare i make a living playing music mm -hmm. <laughs> it's basically what these you know folks in these orchestras are saying but back to kind of the process of what it means to get into a symphony orchestra, right? It's like, okay, so you do the CV round and then you come in and it's who can play these excerpts the best. So what do they do? Well, wouldn't it make sense that they would just give you music that nobody is familiar with, you know, right. just something from some random symphony that like maybe you've played, maybe you haven't, but it kind of puts everybody on an equal footing. You have to learn this in a certain amount of time and then you have to perform it for us. No, what they do is they give you standard excerpts, right? So these are excerpts that are taught in conservatories that are taught from when you're a young student saying like, this is what you are going to find. So it's not even so much about the people who are the best at playing, the people who are the best at A, auditioning. So playing in that high pressure environment and B, you know, people who've spent all of their time working on standard orchestral excerpts, right? And so God help you if you have intellectual curiosity, <laughs> you know, and want to go off and learn something about, uh, you know, how to play rock music, how to play jazz, how to play gamelan music. You know, it, it, if you really want to get into an orchestra, you need to like 
check all of these very specific boxes and just really become an excerpt machine. Um, and so coming back to the question, it, you know, it does not help you to be a multi-instrumentalist because somebody, you know, typically people will see it on your resume and think they're spreading themselves then move on because there are tons and tons, like hundreds of thousands and thousands of people who are playing a single instrument because within this conservatory style educational system, you know, we have teachers who succeeded in you know, playing one instrument, being really good at it and getting work because they came up in a time where it was obscenely less competitive than it is now. <laughs> like, Quiet as are... it's kept. Quiet as it's kept. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, and so it makes sense to them to give the advice to their students to say, if you're the perfect classical musician, you will find success. It's mm -hmm. just not true anymore. Um, even if I mean, even if you are insanely good, an insanely good orchestral player who can play these excerpts, you're still dealing with percentages because there are still a bunch of people who are just as good as you, if not better. Um, and it's you're just playing. It's 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 a it's a crazy game. And so you have to do other things to be able to 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 make your living. Um, yeah, so it makes perfect sense to me when they say, like, honestly, if, if somebody wants an orchestral job, I would say don't bother with doubling, don't bother learning anything else, just work on your excerpts. Because that's the reality. That's that's the only way you're going to get at it. You have to be a tradesperson. You, you work being an, increasing your abilities as an artist means very, very little in the way things are now. Um, yep. Just do everything you can to, you know, go to interlocking, go to Juilliard, get into all the fancy festivals, and then maybe you have a shot, you know. I mean, I so think I, what it sounds what it sounds like you're arguing is that orchestras are looking for technicians and yeah. not necessarily musicians. So with that being said, um, considering how difficult it is to get into an orchestra, certainly an orchestra that you know, can offer you a full-time salary as difficult as that is, is it more difficult or maybe less difficult for one to focus their time on being the multi-instrumentalist playing these different styles for the opportunity to, you know, have different types of work. And what, what I'll throw into that question is something that you've uh, already acknowledged in this conversation. If someone is looking for an Afro Cuban, Cuban uh, jazz player, they're probably going to search for an Afro Cuban first, you know? So is, is it really viable to push musicians into the multi-instrumentalist track? Is it more or less viable than the sort of technical track of playing in an orchestra? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Just being a musician in general is just an unpractical thing that I probably wouldn't recommend to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it, you know, it, yeah, it's funny that you put it that way because like it is, you know, I think being a multi-instrumentalist, if we're talking... Um, from a practical career standpoint, I, th I think there's just far more opportunities out there just because automatically when you play another instrument, you're, you're like doubling your opportunities. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, assuming that you're able to do it with a, any kind of level of proficiency. And uh, frankly, you know, I just I, I adore the theater world and I think it's something that's growing rather than shrinking. Um, because it means a lot to people and it means a lot to to people who are who are young and old. And um, it, it is uh, there's there's tons of, of of theater companies out there. There are schools that hire musicians uh, for theater productions. And um, 
and then when you are and then you know so that's the the career standpoint but then also if you're playing if you're a jazz musician who's a multi-instrumentalist there's still big bands out there and they will have you double and if you are a um a classical musician and somebody says oh man you know we're really in need of an oboe or bassoon player Mm -hmm. and you're also a clarinetist or whatever it's like that's you know that's your opportunity right there so uh you know i just from a purely you know uh mathematical standpoint you know there there there's benefits to that and if we come down to just you know and this is this is personal preference and i think there are a lot of people like me out there but there might be people who are a little different um so you know take it with a grain of salt but like variety is the spice of life and frankly i i really believe i truly believe obviously i'm biased that playing a different instrument while you're playing another instrument is going to make you better at your primary instrument. I think it will sort of expand your, it'll expand your mind. It will kind of open up different neural pathways that wouldn't have been opened up before. And it makes you more sensitive to the playing of, of other people that you're playing with that are playing on those same instruments. Right. Yeah. Um, and their intonation tendencies and their, uh, and sort of the the tendencies of of attack and uh, expression that you can really blend and and understand where they're coming from, even in an orchestra, um, than people who only played that primary instrument. Um, now, will it take away? You know, now will that time spent on another instrument uh, kind of take away from? you know, time spent on your primary instrument. And I really, I really don't think so because I think there is a lot of sort of scientific substantiation behind the idea that your mind needs rest. You know, just like if you're a bodybuilder, it's like you need to rest your muscles if you work them, otherwise they will not grow. So if you are spending all of your time working on excerpts, working on standard repertoire, then you are never going to rest that part of your brain. And what's the best way to rest that part of your brain than by distracting it with something completely different, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> so, so I do want to, you know, get into orchestras uh specifically and you know the last time you appeared on the triloquy podcast you were um affiliated with an orchestra here to uh, promote the work of that orchestra i wonder if you can uh, give us an update yeah so i mean i kind of call myself a recovering arts administrator uh <laughs> i uh you know it's funny yeah i was working with the du bois orchestra and they still exist and you know they're they're doing fine things you know i um i i am glad to not really be involved in the orchestra world anymore i want you know if i'm going to play classical music i kind of want to do it on my own terms and getting caught up in that world was a little bit um yeah it was just stressful for me you know i i i think you know when it was happening when i came on the podcast it was in the midst of the pandemic and you're kind of promoting this entire rethink of the ensemble to put it into perspective. The orchestra it was founded in 2015 is named after W.E.B. Du Bois, and it was focused on the principles of of um, of performing the works of historically marginalized composers alongside those of the canon. Right. Mm-hmm. which is something that a lot of orchestras are doing nowadays. And when I was working with them, you know, this was in the midst of just an entire rebrand and, you know, kind of really, you know, sort of honing in more on, on, um, you know, 
doing uh, the majority of our programming at, from historical historically marginalized composers and stuff like that, and really taking more of a tact of like calling truth to power and sort of, you know, mentioning in our in our messaging saying that like you know i mean other orchestras are starting to perform these works but they're not doing it as a part of their you know primary uh programming you know they're not really you know it's like while they might be playing florence price or something it will be on a separate concert with mm -hmm. with kind of the associate conductor and saying like you know and then going on to perform beethoven's ninth and putting more importance on that or like putting it at the in the, as an opener to a program and things like that so really kind of you know uh um disingenuous kind of uh efforts to um kind of box check a little bit and that came off as extreme to a lot of people well wow. and you know and even and even kind of coming off as saying like you know we want to give music we want to present music for the people instead of just the wealthy and the scholarly and again this this seems like an extreme notion of people you know when your main prerogative is just joy and happiness for everyone that is extreme to people mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and it showed in dollars and cents to what was happening now it was kind of right in the, it was basically in the middle of the pandemic where we thought we were coming out of the pandemic so that had a um an effect on it as well but i would say that my efforts in that in that thinking were an absolute failure they it didn't re resonate with the people who would give money to orchestras and that was really disheartening for me and uh, but at the same time it was very eye opening and i kind of really um appreciate that I got that clear of a message, <laughs> you know, yeah. and yeah. especially as a player made it be like, okay, well, maybe I can focus a little bit more on theater and, and stuff like that. And which, which really paid off both, you know, artistically and, and, um, uh, financially. So. Yeah. You're, you're making me think about, again, just the foundations of my work and even this podcast, this idea of decolonizing the space. There have been so many orchestras who have, you know, done work either marginal or, you know, significant when it comes to diversifying musicians. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in my view, even an orchestra of only black people playing Beethoven isn't the goal. That isn't the point. Mm -hmm. That's not the the destination, especially considering all of the different styles that are, you know, out there to be explored, all of the cultures that can be celebrated mm -hmm. through the orchestral experience. Are we to understand, or I guess in in your opinion, from your perspective, if the audiences have made it clear that this is the type of music that they're interested in, if the boards of directors have made it clear that this programming style is what um, orchestras, you know, need to do, are we talking about, you know, seeing the end of orchestras as we know them and not specifically as it uh, applies to the Du Bois Orchestra, but just generally speaking, what I hear you saying is that what, you know, you and I might consider marginal progress is really radical for the status mm -hmm. quo. Maybe maybe we just need to acknowledge that we got to let this house burn down so that we can build something new that looks completely different. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, Oh man, there's so much to say about that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what, you know, we think about the way orchestras are right now. And the reason the biggest orchestras are the biggest orchestras 
right now is because really rich people loved classical music back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. There were huge grants that were given to all the, not the best orchestras, but the orchestras that had the most funding um, by the Rockefeller Foundation. And then, you know, the Ford Foundation gave a lot of money. And then, of course, in a much smaller way, the National Endowment for the Arts. These, This is the money that all these orchestras are clinging on to. And the endowments that are still there, those aren't going to last forever because the modern day Rockefellers are Elon Musk and, you know, (laughs) and they could give, they will not give money to symphony orchestras because it's, that's not the modern country club anymore. You know, Um, I think orchestras historically have just been kind of another country club for ultra rich people. I remember hearing an adage from somebody being like, uh, you know, going to the orchestra is more about saying, or I'm sorry, going to the opera specifically is more about saying you went to the opera than actually going and enjoying the opera, you know? Sure, um, sure. But that, you know, but that's kind of pretentious amongst people of our generation. Right. But, and so that's going to be going away, but, you know, I think when it comes to program, you know, what we can do to make orchestras survive isn't even so much about the programming because I think people can actually enjoy the stuff, but Hey, you know, do little things like let people take drinks to their seats and, you know, just have a more welcoming environment, you know, maybe not like, you know, look down on people who aren't uh, sort of matching the the dress code and everything like that. It's little things like that that just make the experience a little bit more enjoyable for people, enjoyable for people, you know, add visual elements, you know, mm-hmm. like I think a, like a really good visual art installment alongside a piece from the traditional canon, let's set aside programming for example like if you just want to keep to the regular canon like add something that's going to compete with all of the media that we've been exposed to throughout our entire lives you know like so many people want to point the finger at the audiences that the reason orchestras are dying the reason traditional theater is dying the reason the ballet is dying is because you're too stupid because the audience is uneducated and you you know you people are you know, you're just on your phones and watching tv and stuff like that and i'm like well, let's 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 examine that for a second. OK, like, you know, we have phones, we have TV. Guess what? I built an orchestra from my phone. I built a career from my phone. I do mm-hmm. video editing on my phone. You know, I've watched genius works of art on the TV, on my computer. You know, it's like these are things that are, you know, that aren't just uh, uh, just garbage like like people in this world want to think. And so just do things that that can perhaps compete with that a little bit. You know, it's like we spend our entire lives being like stimulated and stimulated and stimulated. So when you say like it is your fault for not being educated enough to appreciate like a dimly lit room full of white people in tuxedos playing Beethoven and saying that's our fault, that's being extraordinarily pompous. Right. Um and then when you want to talk about programming, I mean, let's let's even change up what the orchestra actually is. Like I think about an orchestra that was touring around and did amazing work. It was the uh, the Ma Dukes Orchestra, um, my uh, Miguel Atwood Ferguson. Like he was like, it was such an incredible thing that meant something to people of our generation. This is music that we had heard before, and they had orchestrated these like amazing pieces of music that actually meant something to us. Um, and it did really well. And, you know, it changed up some, you know, you suddenly had a drum set in the orchestra, you had hip hop artists playing with an orchestra and 
you know, a, or some traditional symphony orchestras could could have learned something from that, but they just didn't because these people on the boards, they just have to hold on to their country club. They have to hold on to this notion that like Beethoven is just higher art than Jay Dilla, that Mozart is just higher art than, you know, any given jazz artist or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it, and it's just silly. And it's, 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 uh, it's elitist and frankly, a little white supremacist, you know, I mean, if you're, I remember, okay. So just to take it back a little bit, I'm going to attach my breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I was like reading, you know, going through an excerpt book, just an introduction of an excerpt book um, for flute, you know, one of the first things it said in there, like, if you want to join an orchestra to play the greatest music in the world, and I had to stop there and just extrapolate that right. for a second. The right. greatest music in the world, in the world. It's like you could have softened that language just a little bit. You know, if I would have agreed with it, if you said among the greatest music in the world or some of the greatest music in the world. No, it is the greatest music in the world. It's it's what every, all these folks believe and it will lead to and as our sort of society becomes more just globalized whatever you want to call it yeah it's inevitable it's inevitable that these organizations that are steeped in colonialism that are steeped in white supremacist thinking um that they you know they're going to die if they keep doing things the way they are so the the two you know if if i think about two paths forward you know i've experienced you know having a full bottle of wine at my seat at you know at certain sort of classical performances dinners involved it basically turns into the orchestra being the wallpaper for the experience okay on the other yeah. hand i've attended uh performances shout out to the cellist uh, abo seloshwe who you know performed with uh, a string orchestra, but had the entire audience at Carnegie Hall in the palm of his hand, everyone standing up, full mm. engagement. But even so, the orchestra was sort of the background. It, it was the mm. accoutrement to the experience. Do you see a way forward that still centers the music making? We can talk about um, uh, uh, interdisciplinary shows that include video or dancing and all of those mm-hmm. things. But is there a path forward for the musicians and the music making to still be at the center? My sense is that that might be what we need to let go by the wayside if we want to continue to allow people to have jobs in this field. Yeah, you know, I th- I think there's certainly room, but here's the thing is that it's all about how you present it. There's a million ways to put something together, you know, and I don't necessarily think that having these elements will always detract from the music, right? If you want music as a centerpiece, if it is delicately presented enough, then you can make it so that all these other elements don't distract from it, but enhance it. And that's to me, that's mm. the name of the game is enhancement, right? So if you want to do a performance or dance as the center of it and the orchestra is accompanying, fine, there's room for that. That's a thing that can exist, but it's not going to be the inevitable outcome. Um, if, if, if you're saying that I want the music to be the center of it, 
you know, if the dance or the or if, if some other uh, sort of a artistic medium that you have along with it becomes a distraction, that's then that's sort of your fault as a presenter. <laughs> you know, you can stage it and you can present it in a way that that really makes the music the vocal point. But I think honestly, I, but w- what it comes down to for me is that like the idea that w- everybody ought to be entertained by somebody just sitting in a statically lit space playing a piece of music for two hours and expect people to be entertained by it, which I know is a dirty word in artistic spaces, but to expect people to like really enjoy it and to actually sort of make it a sort of uh, economically viable thing, then, then you're just not being realistic. Now, I'm not saying these things shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Of course they will exist. I mean, we have tuition dollars paying for that very thing. I mean, the, the very, you know, the, the, you know, people are able to, you know, be teachers and so, you know, professors of applied cello or whatever, and are able to like put on those performances and not have to worry about making too much money for that. And we have, you know, these charitable organizations that fund that type of thing. So you don't have to worry about bringing in huge audiences. And I think those things will continue to exist. But if we're talking about, if we're talking about music and art in general, as a mechanism for the people, then this, this is what I am advocating for. (laughs) You know, it's arts, not just for the wealthy and the scholarly, it is art for everybody and so we have to respect the audience we have to respect the people and not just snub our nose at the tendencies of 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 them you know so as we uh begin to wrap up i have a couple more questions but as we uh, begin to wrap up how can people learn more about you uh and maybe get in contact to book you considering your uh, very unique talents in music well thank you i saw i'm at uh bigjoeflute.com is my website. You got pretty much all you need on there. I keep my resume, my one page resume and my full CV updated on the front page. Um, fresh playing samples and all that. I'm also on Instagram at, at big Joe flute. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So um, I wonder, so first, the, the first of my final two questions, I want to go back to this idea of programming. So when you're putting mm-hmm. together a performance, you know, if you have full autonomy over a space considering what we've talked about how do you approach the idea of programming do you think it's good to give an audience a singular theme is it Mm. too uh, fatiguing to go from you know a middle eastern aesthetic to bebop to something straight up classical how do you how how do you think is Mm. uh, or what do you think is the best way to you know really uh engage the diversity of music that's out there without giving something that's a little fatiguing for the audience to wrap their ears around. Yeah. So for me, the name of the game is, uh, you know, uh, since what my life has become, I I like variety, you know, variety is the spice of life. I like to have sort of a charcuterie board of programming. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes when I do something and I am hoping in the spring to do something, uh, you know, have a a sort of solo recital. So keep an eye on my website for that. Um, in the Boston area, that it will um, include sort of a mix of like composers like Miguel Del Aguila and alongside uh, Bois Mortier and alongside uh, Frank Zappa and you know some Maynard Ferguson and so really a a, a big cross section of sort of every type of style with a lot of different types of instruments as well. So for 
and there is a little bit of conceptual whiplash, which is kind of inevitable if you're kind of presenting a multi-genre program. Um, but it to me and what I like to present, <laughs> this is this is kind of what I enjoy doing and what I feel like I would enjoy seeing. Um because I, you know, I love going and seeing Baroque music and stuff like that, but it does not take long for me to get bored because I have a very short attention span. <laughs> so, <Same>. <laughs> um, so which, you know, so it, this is personal preference. You know, I also think if you want to put on three music, three hours of like the most avant-garde music that you could possibly commission, go for it. It's not something that I'm going to go see, but this is kind of how I like to do things. Yeah, it's hard to get me to sit down in front of anything that's three hours. I mean, you're th that uh, uh, look like I'm thinking about the Malcolm X inspired opera. Like it has to be something like that to really have my attention for that uh, amount of time. But um, but but that that's another conversation where yes, where I wanted to where I wanted to end um is identifying points of departure. So there are musicians out there who are interested in uh, branching out and expanding, you know, what they're able to do, what they're able to offer to the world musically, whether that's picking up different instruments, learning different genres or styles. I think the same can be true for institutions exposing their audiences to the broader world of music. So I wonder what you can offer as far as uh, points of departure for the single instrumentalists who might want to learn more things, and maybe even the institutions who are single genres so to speak, who could benefit from some expansion. Yeah. I mean, luckily we have so many platforms nowadays, you know, just go dig, dig and dig and dig. And like, you know, you can find people, you know, on, uh, you know, just on YouTube and on all, all kinds of social media, um, you know, people that are experts in this field, you know, people have gone to different countries on Fulbrights or even people just in those countries. If you do enough digging, um, you know, you can find all of these folks and, you know, you don't need Silk Road to be your entire world music exposure. Um, you know, you, you can go out and find these things. You can really find the genuine article and, you know, and if you got the money, go, go travel, <laughs> you know, go see it. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that like, you know, we talk about how like Debussy was in, influenced by Gamelon because they came to the World's Fair. It was like that was the only opportunity for someone to go see Gamelon was the right. World's Fair. Right? right. Nowadays, it's like it's all at our fingertips, you know. So. Another excerpt there from Joe's promo reel. I, mean, I don't know why I'm just so uh, enthralled by it, but maybe it's because I love the flute. You know, the flute has been a, a an instrument that's been my fave for since I was a, an instrumentalist. Folks know me as a bassoonist, but uh, folks who really know me know that I started the bassoon and the flute around the same time. The bassoon was my first instrument, but about, I don't know, two or three months into playing the bassoon, uh, I wanted to tap into the instrument that I wanted to play first, which was the flute. So when I when I see folks being creative with the flute, like Joe, like Andre 3000, like I mentioned earlier, it always uh, is really attractive to me. So uh, shout out to uh, Joe LaRocca for taking the time to chat with me. One thing uh, that I want to underscore before we get into the triloquy is that it is so much more competitive out there now for orchestral musicians as it used to be. And there are so many conversations that I can pull from that. For example, why do we have panels and committees of musicians judging on an audition basis, musicians that more times than not are better than all of them, or at least more practice, more hot, as we say, 
Um, and, and, and not to get on that tangent, but I, I really just needed to say that again, because there aren't a lot of folks who come on this show that really affirm that fact. And I really appreciated uh, hearing it. So shout out again to uh, Joe LaRocca. Thanks so much for coming to the Triloquy podcast. Okay, so I have a Triloquy that I sort of previewed, that I sort of teased on social media earlier this week. So um, I want to give a shout out to Dell, who was on the ground working the Chamber Music America conference. Uh, last weekend. I'm not going to say any other names, but he came home talking about some of the conversations that he was having with composers and how there are still so many composers of color out there that just want to be known as a great composer and don't want their identities attached to uh, anything that they create in that way. When anyone begins to talk like that, I think about uh, one of the writings of Langston Hughes. I'll, I'll have it linked in the uh, description of this. Uh, the title of it here is The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. Let me. I'm, I'm going to read just uh, the first paragraph of this just to frame what I want to say. Langston Hughes says here, one of the most promising of the young Negro poets said to me once, quote, I want to be a poet, not a Negro poet meaning I believe I want to write like a white poet, meaning subconsciously I would like to be a white poet, meaning behind that I would like to be white. <laughs> I'll read a little bit more of Langston Hughes' words here. He says, and I was sorry the young man said that for no great poet has ever been afraid of being himself. And I doubted then that with his desire to run away spiritually from his race, this boy would ever be a great poet. But this is the mountain standing in the way of any true Negro art in America, this urge within the race toward whiteness, the desire to pour racial individuality into the mold of American standardization and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible. Um, so that in itself is, is is something that people have lots of different ideas and, and comments and opinions on. But I wanted to bring that up because, again, every time I hear the story of especially a musician or a composer wanting to be known as just a composer and not a black composer or maybe even a woman composer, what I want to in, in, uh, inspire people to understand is that in the common world, which, number one, most artists don't engage all of that much, certainly not classical musicians. I mean, we can even talk about hip hop artists these days. They're around mansions and money and chains and all that stuff, strip clubs. But the folks who are actually paying for their music and keeping them, you know, famous are on the ground living in their walk-up apartments like like I am. Let me let me not get too much on a tangent and apologizing again for freestyling here. But what, what I just want artists, especially black so-called classical musical artists to understand is that when I walk down the street or, or go across the landing in my apartment building and say something about classical music or say something about a composer, they're thinking of a white man. And that's just, that can't be argued. That That's the culture that has been fostered over the generations. When people think about classical music who have, been, who have not been uh, steeped in the world of conservatories, haven't been um, in thought leadership, haven't listened to the Triloquy podcast, when just the everyday person and walking down the streets thinks about a composer or thinks about classical music. They're thinking about somebody white. Now we can talk about how we fix that and shift that narrative. But with that being the status quo right now of that phrase classical music, we have to understand the implications of just wanting to be a composer and not being a black composer or being a woman composer. Now I'm open to anyone and everyone disagreeing with, with, uh, 
with the way that I think about this, but I very much agree with Langston Hughes. When we have folks out here wanting to be treated the same as white people in a white space, are you not wanting to be white? Now, let me say that again. We have to recognize, number one, that classical music is still by far a predominantly white institution, not only, uh, uh, you know, where, where in my circles, but I think arguably um, across the Western world. Now, of course, when you say classical music in India, China, Japan, the Caribbean, you know, uh, uh, other other parts of the world, you know, the African continent, whiteness isn't necessarily what comes to mind. But in our context, that is what comes to mind. And, you know, we can talk about the audiences. We can talk about these orchestras being all white for the most part. So if we're talking about white spaces and marginalized peoples wanting to be treated in the way that folks have always been treated in those spaces, are you not aspiring to be treated as a white person? Are you not aspiring toward whiteness? Now, I'm a radical. I attach that idea to much more than just professional aspiration. I attach that to the way we dress, to the way we talk, to the way that we use things, uh, phrases like um, black excellence. You know, what does that mean to be more excellent than, than another black person? You know, I, I could I could go on for a long time. But basically what, what I want to, you know, inspire everyone listening this to think about listening to this to think about is not only Langston Hughes words, but how Langston Hughes words apply to our contexts today. Let's say there's a white person who wants to be treated as an equal in the world of hip hop. Number one, there has to be the affirmation and just the, the known fact that hip hop is a black medium, A and B. If that white person wants to be treated as an equal in the world of hip hop, he wants to be treated the same way that any other black hip hop artist is treated. Okay, so let's flip that on its head. When we have, again, this predominantly white space of so-called classical music, if a marginalized person wants to be treated in the same manner in that space, are you not aspiring to be treated white or are you not aspiring to whiteness i dare one of you and i don't say that in a in a ugly way or a pointed way i really hope as many of you as possible will challenge this way that i'm thinking because maybe there's something i'm not seeing or or something that i'm not understanding it's certainly not the industry i spent 10 years as a as an orchestral bassoonist i'm in arts admin now on the management side of orchestras of course worked in radio so it's not that i don't understand the genre or the industry or the art form but maybe there's something else that I don't see. When a person says to me, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say it squarely here. When a person says to me, they want to be treated not as a black composer, not as a black orchestral musician, not as a black conductor, but just a great conductor, a great composer, a great musician. What I hear is that person wanting to be in a white existence, in a white space. I'm going to leave it there. And I hope that y'all will uh, respond, push back, let me know what I'm not seeing. And uh, maybe I'll have something to, uh, to uh, you know, give y'all some uh, updates on next week when I <laughs> return to the show. Again, thanks so much to each and every one of you uh, for listening. Shout out to everyone uh, who uh, took part in the inclusive stages uh, activities earlier today. That that ended up being much better than I thought it would be. Maybe I'll talk about that uh, next week as well. Shout out to everyone who's here in Detroit at the Sphinx Conference, everyone who isn't here in Detroit at the Sphinx Conference. I really want to uh, engage broader dialogue, and I think this is one of those broader dialogues that we need to get into. Is a person 
in classical music who aspires to be known as just a great classical musician instead of being a black classical musician? Is that person not aspiring to whiteness? Does that person deep down inside not want to be white, at least on some level? I'll, I'll leave it there for this week, and I'll talk to you all again next week. Thanks so much. Peace. Peace.